Part nine of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper, section nine. Some of my readers. If one finds readers for blunt, unvarnished indiscretions of this kind, will be perhaps wondering why, as I turn and turn about these pivotal points of my poor life's history, I say nothing of the authors that have influenced me. Ah, for the very simple reason, the list would be too long. What portion of my being can be influenced by such things as books? And hopelessly bookish though I am, that portion is not very large is influenced by every book I read. As I have observed above, I think by books, I talk by books. I surround everything that occurs to me by a bookish atmosphere. Books make a fine, mellow, imaginative mist through which I see things and people thrown to an enchanting distance. Yes, I think by books, but here again, when it comes to the point, I do not live by books. For instance, because books upon Greek art assure me that the exquisite limbs of boys and girls are more important objects of contemplation, and more revealing of the platonic ideal of beauty than trees and flowers, I do not therefore leave my solitary valley in the Sussex Downs, and rush to the beach at Brighton, or when the mood is on me, and I sit enraptured by the airy movements of a Pavlova or an Isadora Duncan, I do not tear myself away and retreat to the wilderness because, in the intervals of the acts, I glance over some mystic Wordsworthian sonnet, or some verse from the prophet Isaiah. I do not doubt my friends because Emerson recommends living to oneself. I do not shun the society of gentle ladies because Schopenhauer says unkind things about the shape of their figures. The influence which books have over me is like the influence of some constant orchestral accompaniment. One moves from group to group as the band plays, but the music does not the least modify one's inveterate tastes and proclivities. It heightens one's pleasures here. It softens one's disappointment there. It is the atmosphere of one's life drama. But over the material sequence of acts and scenes, it has no power at all. Of course, my inborn disposition largely affects my taste in books. My absolute indifference to artistic form and my passion for analytical suggestion obviously lead me to prefer Jean Christophe to Madame Bovary, and Crime and Punishment to a short story by de Maupassant. I have the power also, a rare power it seems, judging from the grotesque misunderstandings of the official critics, of taking my favourite authors with a pinch of salt. I am able, for instance, to appreciate Nietzsche's slashing onsorts upon the gregarious tyranny of weakness without any obsequious veneration for the blonde assassin. My role in the lecturing field seems naturally to assume the character of an attempt to instill a little imagination into the public's mind. I love Nietzsche's pulverizing insight in his noble and aristocratic tone, but I do not feel in the least bound to accept as infallible oracles his portentous utterances about eternal recurrence and the higher morality. The former theory seems based on very doubtful premises, and the latter demands an austere nobility of nature, which is far out of my reach. 
simple and naive indeed are those easy pagan souls who dream that this devastating sage's haughty imperatives will be found kinder to their pleasant vices than the rules of the church the higher morality may condone what we poor pantagruelian christians have been taught to regard as crime but the glacial ears of its mountainous summits will freeze with intolerable disdain our little earthly frailties when one demands a real magnetic clairvoyance in regard to the subtler things when one cries out for a full interpretive understanding of the world-thick volume of human frailty its treacherous undercurrents its subterranean perversities it is not i think so much to nietzsche's flashing northern lights that one turns as to the less arbitrary revelations of a dostoevsky or a henry james but to revert to my bewildering contradictions it is a most curious psychological spectacle to watch the widening gulf between one's dramatic imagination of what a human life upon earth ought to be and the real actual thing that one's life has in practice become in writing of myself i am tempted for instance to make much of the effect upon my mind of sudden little changes in my surroundings i like to speak of myself as being affected by those whispers and rumours those signs and signals which come and go so magically and wantonly about the paths of us all the sudden falling of a cool shadow across a dusty road the flicker of yellow sunlight through the doorway of some wayside barn the gleam of a seagull's wing in the track of a great ship the mystery of a solitary bridge or river weir heavy with the muttering of the wind and water the look of some lonely poplar tree where nothing but marsh reeds and grey mists can see its absorption into the night these chance hieroglyphics of the moving finger should be according to my imagination of my wayfaring turning points and conversions of deep spiritual significance but they are nothing of the kind i see them i note them i avariciously appropriate to myself their evasive charm but that is all it ends there they do not penetrate the opaque material substance of my real identity it is a sad confession to have to make but the truth is i have grown cynically endued into the element of my habitual temper and my habitual temper allows for no sudden and thrilling revelations those wonderful second thoughts and earth-escaping ecstasies which i am able to describe only too eloquently in words never come to me in life i see not feel how significant these omens are i peer up at arcturus and orion but these celestial travellers do not throb and vibrate for me with divine reassurances all those miraculous intimations which the poets draw from the moaning of forest branches and the shadows of moonlit lakes leave me untouched and unmoved in my earth-bound proclivity and yet i am not dull to their appeal my senses are not atrophied i do not pass by these magical significations with philistine indifference it is only that a certain heavy cynical fatalistic doubt as to the possibility of their having any real message for me paralyzes my spiritual response my analytical mind is always at hand ready to reduce to psychological causes every stir and lift of the emotional soul it may be true in spite of what i have said earlier in these pages that i really have anarchistic longings for something surprising uncaused 
arbitrary and chaotic in the stream of things as i grow older these wayward cravings diminish and i tend to give myself up more and more completely to a vision of the world that is limited categorical and determined this leads me to a further problem in the analysis of my disposition it is queer to note how active and insatiable my mind is as compared with the paralysis of my spirit i fancy that pride has something to do with this i seem to have inherited pride of intellect combined with contempt for spiritual susceptibility i am always tempted to accuse spiritually sensitive people of hypocrisy affectation and self-deception i suspect them of false interpretations of purely physiological feelings my dislike of spiritual emotion is further enhanced by a cautious dread i have of being fooled by the universe it is odd that i should have this peculiarity for i rather like as i have hinted feeling and being a fool in the opinion of humanity it is one of my little ways of being revenged upon people this tendency to make faces and act like a lunatic in their presence but though i like being a fool before men i do not like being a fool before nature i am extremely reluctant to concede to this great sarcastic parent which brought me forth the power to drug me with its insidious drugs when i read what the shrewd old goethe says about not destroying the essential illusions i feel a grim satisfaction in noting that that sly world-child knew well enough that they were illusions it is important here that i should emphatically protest that my dislike of spiritual ecstasies has nothing to do with the infirmity of my flesh one's mental moods are undoubtedly enormously influenced by one's physical moods and my physical moods are often extremely devastating i suffer from chronic gastric weakness an inherited tendency to gastric ulceration nervous dyspepsia and inflammation of the stomach hangs like a constant cloud of deadly vapour over my activities i am driven to a thousand hypochondriacal precautions and avoidances my diet is an invalid's diet my nerves are an invalid's nerves ulcers are not cheerful companions for an epicure's path through life the stomach is the concentration point for every one of our most thrilling reactions it is in the pit of the stomach that one feels the ache of nostalgia and the ache of desire as well as the ache of indigestion undoubtedly my aesthetic appreciation of many charming things is blurred and clouded by this infirmity its yoke is exhausting and i make no doubt that much of my tired inclination for the liberating poppies of proserpine are due to its burden it is difficult to idealize the stomach it is not an agreeable thought that one's end when it does come will probably be due to some unlovely fungoid growth at the centre of one's nervous sensibilities one would sooner be eaten by silvery fishes than by a gross leaden-coloured polypus i wonder if the reader of this little sketch has yet divined a certain aspect of my character which i have myself only recently recognised a person might suppose from the tone i sometimes adopt that i live an epicurean life of meticulous self-conscious sensations passing from one to another with an inward unction of avaricious concentration i do nothing of the kind it would be impossible to find a human being with a less firm hold upon the stream of his emotional experiences my consciousness is hardly ever turned inward 
my experiences are hardly ever gathered up into a deliberate or definite continuity i plunge from attraction to attraction from lure to lure from obsession to obsession with the simple unpremeditated greediness of a child i never survey myself with detached or intelligent interest i never organize or mould myself i never contemplate myself with tender or humorous pity in this sense i have none of the sentimentalist in me i have nothing of the artist either i do not search about for my most characteristic vision of the world and then deliberately fortify it and emphasize it with laborious effort those among my friends who possess the sharp edges of the artist's mind are irritated and provoked by the drifting and chaotic manner in which my sensations succeed one another with no symbolic orientation to cultivate my senses on the lines of an imaginative and individual vision is an impossibility to me it is not an impossibility because of indolence as some have thought i am not an indolent person i am a restlessly active one it is an impossibility because i am unwilling to sacrifice any one single sensual pleasure to another and it is only out of sacrifice of this kind that the true artist's vision is banked up and protected from dissolution i have no imaginative perseverance no aesthetic method i clutch at one thing after another with infantile absorption in doing so i absolutely forget myself my consciousness is entirely taken up with the outward thing that draws me this is quite the contrary of the artist's way artists never forget themselves they use outward things only as mirrors and musical stops by which they see their own image and hear their own voice heightened and enlarged another cause of my inability to cultivate the artist's vision is my inveterate scepticism i am sceptical about the truth of every phase of refinement in these hypersensitive explorations this is of course an absurd obstacle because objective truth has nothing to do with the artist's imagination he has a perfect right to treat it with contempt and out of a scepticism quite as deep as mine to create a world of original reality entirely his own i cannot do this and i find myself irresistibly led to regard as unnatural conceited affected and silly those who achieve it when i meet such patient creators of their own elaborate vision i feel tempted to jeer and gibe at them from a point of view as grossly philistine as that of any ignorant country boor and yet even as i write these words oh the subtle hiding places of vanity i am in my heart of hearts conscious of a sort of self-satisfied pride that i regard these people as affected and insincere is it a queer vein of puritanism in me or a vein of rough bucolic humour that produces this complacency but no away with such mock modesty what i really feel is that in my blundering chaotic way i am nearer to the great fermenting vats of the elemental world than these curled darlings of wilful fancy it is i suppose this rude earthly realism in my composition that makes it so hard for me to appreciate the elaborate overtones and rhythmic suggestions of the futurist and cubist schools of painting post-impressionism on the contrary i love and admire and hold it a great and invaluable experiment in the history of art 
this is because post-impressionism has a fine barbaric sense of the splendid magic of the surface of things that surface of things where i habitually live whereas those others go digging away at what to me are profoundly uninteresting mathematical harmonies of a very doubtful world beneath as to what is called free verse i am quite friendly to it as long as it deals in realistic bitterness and earthly tang with the old essential ironies and insults of fate's common ways with her mortal children it is when it launches out into mystical abstruseness and recondite occultism into symbolic mythology and images drawn from fairyland that i detest and despise it free verse apart what really appeals to me in poetry is the high penetrating beauty of great magical single lines such lines as one comes across in horace and milton and dante and i notice that these lines invariably have to do with the noble suggestiveness of the surface of things the surface of things as it has always been end of part nine